I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger, and this is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 10th, 2015. Coming up, it may not sound too sexy, but rust is a hugely important, destructive, and fascinating process. As local journalist Johnny Waldman will discuss from his new book, Rust, The Longest War. And author and widely known skeptic Michael Shermer talks about his new book, The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Toward Truth, Justice, and Freedom. These books and more will be available to you for a pledge donation. Call us now at 303-449-4885 to show your support for How on Earth. First, we've got a couple sciencey events coming up this week for you. On the science calendar this week, tonight you can hear a talk about what is arguably the most destructive natural disaster in the world. Guess again. It's about rust. Boulder journalist Jonathan Waldman will talk about his first and just published book. It's called Rust, The Longest War. The event is tonight at 7.30 at the Boulder Bookstore. And coming up, we'll give you a sneak peek of sorts, and we'll play a clip from Susan's recent interview with the author. And there's another cool science event tonight, a little competition. Café Scientifique Boulder will present a talk by Dr. Ben Barthel, a postdoctoral research assistant in chemistry at CU Boulder. His talk is called Knowing One's Enemy, Cancer and the Development of Rationally Designed Therapies. As Dr. Barthel notes, cancer will arise in slightly more than one in three Americans during their lifetimes. Yet, despite being so common, it's still a murky field. And this murkiness has created lots of myths about causes and cures for the disease. Though still far from complete, the research community has witnessed a dramatic progress in understanding the causes and progression of the disease since the war on cancer was declared in 1971. Dr. Barthel defines cancer as disease of the DNA and a natural consequence of multicellular life. He'll discuss how his research lab designs and builds new targeted therapies that have the potential to more effectively treat a wide variety of cancers while maintaining a high quality of life for patients. So as to the event, refreshments start at 5.30 and the talk will begin at 6. That's tonight. And last... It'll last for roughly 20 minutes, followed by Q&A until 7. Café Sai meets at West Flanders Brewing at 1125 Pearl Street in Boulder on the second floor. For more info, search Café Scientifique Boulder. And seating's limited to 70, so please RSVP to sigmaxi.cuboulder at gmail.com. It's event like, events like these that you can hear about on KGNU's Science Show. And we have many, many of these speakers, scientists, authors, policymakers, STEM educators, and more on the How on Earth show. It's another reason why I love community-powered KGNU. I do, too. And speaking of authors, we have several books to give away to those of you who pledge today. We have, as we mentioned before, Rust, The Longest War, and that interview will be coming up in a bit. We also have The Moral Arc by Michael Shermer, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Toward Truth, as she just mentioned. And we also have Animal Weapons. We'll tell you more about them in a bit. Call now to pledge your support to KGNU at 303-449-4885. We also have a very special generous challenge grant. If you call before 9.30 today... If we get up to $2,000 in pledges, we get an extra $1,000. And thanks to that, to Tatican Tree Company and a sustaining member from Denver. 
And call in now. Show us how much you appreciate local news, local science, support How on Earth, support KGNU. Call in now at 303-449-4885. And you can also log in at li- online at kgnu.org to make a pledge. So, Susan, I know you've been immersed in the rest book lately. <laughs> Tell us more about it. Well, there's a lot to this book, including a lot of characters uh, from here. Ball, Corpse, Can School, and Golden. We've got an engineer at CU Boulder who's highlighted. But mainly it's this story I wouldn't have thought was so fascinating about rust. I mean, no surprise. It's everywhere. And it's a kind of a surprise that it's not more ubiquitous, as he says in this interview. So want to give a little snippet of it. Sure. This is the uh, interview recently with Jonathan Waldman. Rust? I call it rust. Engineers or chemists would get mad at me because really it's oxidation or corrosion. The elements in the universe are metals, and nearly all of them will give up electrons to oxygen. It's, lo- it's losing part of your being to something that takes part of it. And you describe it as, what did you say, the most destructive natural disaster in the world? The most destructive natural disaster in the history of the modern world. I, I wouldn't dare go back to a giant meteor hitting hitting the planet. And we're not talking human death as much as economic cost, right? Well, and pure destructive value. I mean, it you know, knocking down bridges and blowing water heaters through house roofs, eating through pipelines, wrecking cars... Yeah, and and then on the other hand, it seems in a way amazing that it's not everywhere. So, for instance, you describe in your book, I think it's really interesting chapters on the food and beverage industry. And the thing that we can all relate to is the soda can or perhaps the beer can, depending on our age. So talk about that. And why is it that we're not drinking the metal of the the aluminum of the can? Well, it's funny. We call it we call them aluminum cans, but really they're plastic cans, and the aluminum is what sort of holds them together. I, I think it has to do with we're, we're so used to metal working for us since we weren't around before stainless steel was invented, so we sort of expect metal to do a lot more for us than most metals can do. Um, with the aluminum can and with steel food cans, they're all lined with the plastic, which is basically 80% BPA. Sort of the killer chemical, a lot of money spent to both conceal it and to and to fix it. It's definitely a controversial chemical. It gets a lot of attention. It is an endocrine disruptor, and it's the stuff in baby bottles that got a lot of attention recently. Um, and it's the stuff that's in food and beverage cans. And To either harden the plastic or soften the plastic, but it's a form of plasticizer, right? It is. A, it's what makes the plastic plastic, really. <laughs> and we put that plastic inside the cans because the stuff we want to put in cans happens to be really corrosive. It's It's actually kind of crazy to put stuff like Mountain Dew or lemon juice or tomato sauce in a can. You have some fascinating stories about the sort of ubiquity of rust and some of the characters, serious and crazy, (laughs) who are working on corrosion prevention. One that stands out to me is that Dan Dunmore, basically the U.S. rust czar. Dan Dunmore's job is, he, he thinks of himself as the corrosion ambassador within the Pentagon. He tries to save the Defense Department billions of dollars uh, through ships that are rusting or the space fence or the president's new helicopter. You name it. You name any project that's going through the DOD. He's trying to make sure they address rust. And it's a huge problem. And and talk about some of the consequences, this huge problem for the military and and for all infrastructure, right? Uh, Rust turns out to be the number one enemy of the U.S. Navy. 
I've heard admirals say they're worried about keeping the number of ships we have in the Navy, let alone building new ones. They said we can't take care of the ones we have. Uh, it's knocked planes out of the sky. It, it's rendered our, some of our nuclear weapons duds. It's a major threat. And you talk about these rust engineers or anti-corrosion engineers. They don't really get much respect. <laughs> it's sort of a hidden, well, if it's a hidden disaster, probably also kind of a hidden profession. It sounds like you're sort of paying homage to this field and saying there's a lot of room for people to go in this field. It's true. I probably am paying homage to engineers. I think I wanted to be an engineer. Tell us a couple things about some of these engineers, particularly um, the the czar, the rust czar oh, yeah. in the U.S. and what they're mandated with and where we would be without them. Well, there are only 15,000 corrosion engineers in the country, so they're they're pretty hidden. One of them told me uh, that it, it's sort of, if you say you work in rust, it's sort of like saying you work in mold. <laughs> Not too sexy. Not too sexy. Not too glamorous. But they do super important work. And so I, I went from Florida to Alaska trying to trying to catch these guys and watch what they do and see how they defend the material that we so take for granted. And what's something that really stands out? The pipeline, the Alaska pipeline is really what stuck out to me. I spent a month in Alaska from Prudhoe Bay to Valdez watching the operator of the pipeline shove a five-ton robot in one end of the pipe. And this is what they call pig? Call it, yep, it's a pig. And it takes... 18 days for the smart pig to make its way from the North Slope all the way down to Valdez. It is a mechanical solution to an electrochemical problem, which sounds really boring, but it's not, it, it's amazingly challenging. This pipeline goes over three mountain ranges, and if this pig goes up and down those hills too fast, it doesn't work. Is there an ultimate fix, or at least the holy grail, in the materials science field for those who are working on corrosion prevention? That's a great question, and I'm sad to say the answer is no. There's a great quote I found about rust. Someone said that it was the the burden placed providentially before us, which I like. It's sort of huh. it's sort of like accepting that physics physics sort of made a tough a tough world to be in. We use oxygen to transport energy in biological systems, and metals are vulnerable to that same oxygen. It's just the way it is. There's no, we can't make everything in the world out of stainless steel. I'm giving you a sad face. <laughs> we can't make everything out of stainless steel. Rust is a force we maybe need to accept a little more instead of hiding it under the rug. Metal is still our most important material. That was Boulder journalist Jonathan Waldman sharing nuggets from his new book, Rust, The Longest War. You can catch him tonight at 7.30 at the Boulder Bookstore. And we'll post an extended version of that interview on our website, howonearthradio.org. You can get your signed copy of Rust right now by calling with a pledge of $60 or more. So call 303-449-4885. Waldman and his publisher, Simon & Schuster, have donated several copies of the book to give away to those who pledge their support. So again, please call now, 303-449-4885. That's right, Susan. We bring science to you from around the world and highlight all the great research and work that's being done right here in the Colorado area. For example, Jonathan Waldman, he's a local author and journalist bringing this information to us, these connections. Show us your support. Show us that you listen in every week. Call now, 303-449-4885, or go online. Make your pledge online. Become a member. Become part of this community. Show that you support science and information. Science is about knowledge. It's about uh, understanding. KGNU is about 
bringing that understanding, bringing that all, and that knowledge to the masses. Be part of that connection. 303-449-4885. And I feel my brain growing as I listen to you. <laughs> Kendra herself is an engineer. And uh, speaking of local, I think it's also fascinating that we have such an incredibly huge gene pool right here in Colorado. I mean, here in Boulder, here in Denver, and certainly we draw also from Colorado State University, Colorado School of Mines. It's just huge. It's an endless source. And we also um, also solicit and really thank reader I mean, uh, listener input for ideas on the show. So there's all sorts of local. There's local info, as I said, in Rust, all about um, what's now Ball Aerospace. So Ball Corp, um, Bernard Amade, an engineer who started Engineers Without Borders at CU Boulder. Get some play in that book, Rust, The Longest War. It's a really fascinating read. And uh, just so much you can learn on the science show. Things that are fascinating, things that are troublesome, things that make me go, really? which is really why I started a few years ago getting on board with this. And that's right. You are listening right now to KGNU's award-winning science show, How on Earth. And I'm Kendra Kruger. Thank you for listening, guys. And today, for everyone who calls and pledges support, additionally, along with Rust, the Longest War, we have a new book called The Moral Arc by Michael Shermer. It's a New York Times bestselling author. Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine. He writes a monthly column for Scientific American, and he's a regular contributor to Time Magazine. Shermer's bestsellers include The Believing Brain and others. Now today for KGNU, Shermer has graciously donated a limited number of these books, The Moral Arc, to listeners who call 303-449-4885 and pledge at a $60 level or above. Now, you can also pledge online at kgnu.org. And the full title of Shermer's book, by the way, is The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Toward Truth, Justice, and Freedom. Shelley Schlender, one of our longtime correspondents here at, at How on Earth, talked with Michael Shermer a little bit about the book. Let's listen in. Michael Shermer, I've always felt sorry for skeptics. You feel sorry for skeptics? I feel sorry for skeptics, and it's because when I've gone to cultural events and there's a booth of people reading tarot cards, oh, okay. and right next to it there's a booth of people with the Skeptic Society, <laughs> guess which booth people are at? Yes. I'm afraid that's built into what we do, unfortunately. Uh, we are in the minority in the general population, but in fact, you know, we do live in an age of science and technology, and everybody knows that science is really the way to go. They happily use their iPhones and they fly at 35,000 feet and feel safe. They drive cars and, and whatnot and go to doctors. It's just that in some of these areas that are aligned with religion and spirituality and the afterlife, there is still an appeal to the supernatural and non-science. And yet you are somebody who has been in both worlds. You were studying religion and how to be in that world, and then you studied biology I mean, you've been very thickly in both worlds. I have, yes. I wasn't raised religious, but I became a evangelical born-again Christian in high school, and it was in that throughout college, and went to a Christian college, Pepperdine University. And, you know, I was into it until I got to graduate school, and I really started to study, you know, the major issues and problems and arguments on all sides, and I came out the other end as a non-believer. So really, my life's work, in a sense, is trying to make sense of a naturalistic worldview, you know, science and 
pseudoscience, science and religion, science and God, and now, you know, with my new book, Science and Morality. Because the question always is, if you don't believe in God, then where do you get your morals? Why should you be good? You know, how can you say things are getting better if the secular worldview is dominant? That's what I tried to provide an answer for. In your book, The Moral Arc, it's a new book, and I have to admit on this that we almost threw it out at our science show here at KGNU because we get so many books into the science show from intelligent design people and creationists saying we have scientific proof that the earth is only 5,000 years old. And once we saw the title Moral in the book, we thought, "Uh uh-oh, this might be another one. (laughs) But then there were people like Jared Diamond and Stephen Pinsker and Richard Dawkins giving recommendations for this book. And we looked at each other and said, those people are scientists. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Dawkins is not likely to endorse an intelligent design book. (laughs) But in fact, I claim that there's an evolutionary basis to morality, that we all evolved a sense of right and wrong, a sense of guilt when you harm somebody, a sense of anger and injustice and the desire for revenge when somebody harms you, jealousy if you feel like you've been cuckold, embarrassment. These are all moral emotions that evolved, and you can even see them in primates, the great apes and many monkey species like capuchins are notorious for showing similar kinds of moral emotions that we have. So I'm claiming that like language, everybody is born with the capacity to learn morality and which language or which morality you learn depends on which part of the world you were raised in. But what I'm after here is why should we feel guilty about anything or feel angry about anything? Why should we have a sense of justice in the first place? And the answer is because we're a social primate species and we need to get along with one another. We need to have a sense of right and wrong. We need to have a sense of community and, and so forth. And all that's built in. It's hardwired. It comes with the species. So It's functionally useful. Absolutely functionally useful. Without it, it would just be chaos. It would be anarchy. We would not have social communities. We wouldn't have civil societies. And none of this would exist without that moral sense. So in that sense, it's an objective morality, by which I mean it's not totally relative. It's not totally culture-bound. You know, there's a universal human nature for morality that's part of our species. It does seem that it's hardwired into us. And you specifically chose the title of this book, though, for a very special reason that has to do with Martin Luther King. Yes. Dr. King's famous march from Selma to Montgomery ended with his How Long, Not Long speech. And one of his tropes in there was that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And Dr. King got that phrase from a 19th century abolitionist preacher named Theodore Parker, who in 1853 first observed that, you know, my eye sees but little ways, but when it comes to the moral universe, I think the arc bends towards justice. You know, the abolition of slavery was primarily driven by intellectual ideas from the Enlightenment, the idea that all people should be treated equally under the law. So what's happened with modern religions like Judaism and Christianity is they've incorporated those ideas into their worldview, but you won't find those ideas in the Bible. You know, the creator of the universe who wrote this book failed to mention that slavery is a bad idea and that people should be treated equally and that sort of thing. That comes from the Enlightenment. Although you're mentioning some philosophers as part of what can drive what we call moral decisions. You also mentioned many ways that empirically, just from a scientific analysis, it ends up that being moral is more useful to people in society because it is more effective. That's right. Why should we be nice to other people? Well, one answer is so that they'll be nice to you when you need help. Now, that sounds kind of cold and calculating. I'm only being nice to you because I hope I hope I get something in return. 
But in fact, you can't just pretend to be a nice person because you know, people that are psychopathic, they get found out. People that are just pretending and faking to be nice in order to exploit others, they're called free riders in the trade, they're found out. You actually have to really believe it and live it and be a moral person for other people to really believe it and treat you equally that way. So I'm claiming we evolved this deeper sense of morality. It's really in there. We really do feel good about helping other people. And we really do feel angry about punishing those who wrong us, our loved ones, or our fellow group members. And those are deep, real emotions, and they have very practical uses. That's one of our longtime Science Show volunteers, Shelley Schlender, talking with Michael Shermer about his new book, The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Towards Truth, Justice, and Freedom. And all of us here are volunteers running this show. We've got volunteer scientists, volunteer journalists running How on Earth. Show us your support. Show us that you care and that you're tuning in and listening at 303-449-4885. Shermer's book addresses a wide range of modern issues, including just how science and reason can help to pave the way toward further reductions in nuclear warheads, toward greater equality for people with different genders, sexual orientations, and toward the abolishment of the death penalty. All that is pretty optimistic for the nation's best-known skeptic. If you'd like to learn more about Shermer's ideas, we're offering his book today during the pledge drive, The Moral Arc, to listeners who call and pledge at a $60 level. Call us at 303 303- Four four nine four eight eight five, or online at kgnu.org. And Kendra, I thought, you know, he keeps pounding this message of the sort of genetics of morality. And I want to say to KGNU listeners that I believe it's, it's all of our moral duty, those of us who love to listen. And listeners are super important to the station, but members are absolutely essential for its survival. So please do call, and we have a special challenge grant going on until 9.30. If we collect 2000 we get an additional 1000 And thanks to that pledge, grant, from Tadakan Tree Company and a sustaining member from Denver. So call now, 303 449 And that's right. If you believe in science, if you believe in community, believe in KGNU, believe in how on earth. We also have another cool book to give away today for a pledge of $40. It's called Animal Weapons by Douglas J. Emlin. It's a story about the stunning extreme weapons we see in the animal world, teeth and horns and claws, and what they can tell us about the way humans develop and what arms and other weapons Beth Bennett, another one of our committed volunteer scientists, uh, interviewed the author on the show back on December 2nd, 2014. And you can go to our website, howonearthradio.org, to hear more about it. Search for that interview. So that's Animal Weapons by Doug Emlin for a pledge of $40 at 303-449-4885. And we have yet another book for a pledge of $40 or more, and it's really cool. It's called Your Brain on Food, How Chemicals Control Your Thoughts and Feelings by Gerald Wenk. And again, for a pledge of $40 or more, Your Brain on Food. Call 303-449-4885. So for all those interested in or having to subscribe to a gluten-free diet, there's all sorts of info about that. This investigation into the benefits and risks of supplements to the action of gluten in the brain and marijuana's potential for brain relief. Who knew? Call now, 303-449-4885. 
And that's all the time we have for today's edition of How on Earth. I'm executive producer for this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time. No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments, or why not just pledge today instead of calling the comment line at 303-449-4885. For the How on Earth Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Susan Moran.